think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is the Boys in Short Pants, episode 50, the 51st episode. Uh, in Etienne's absence, we have a, a much-esteemed guest host filling in today uh, for him in his comically large shoes. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Michael Spratt. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Michael is the host of The Docket, another, a fellow podcaster, and you do other things as well. That's right. Apart from passively, aggressively weaseling my way into guest hosting duties here, um, <laughs> yeah, I've got a, a podcast, The Docket, that I co-host uh, with my spouse, Emily Tamman. Uh, I'm a criminal lawyer here in Ottawa, so I do all stuff in the criminal courts. And Emily and I just started sort of a sub-podcast where we're going to be going through the uh, the Netflix documentary, The Staircase, which just uh, came onto Netflix, sort of episode by episode. Oh. And we should have uh, our first episode of that out uh, in the next couple of days. What's that about? It's this crazy, crazy sort of making a murderer style documentary, but where there was sort of poverty in the defense of, of making a murderer. Um, this deals with um, a defendant who has the ultimate resources to hire the best team. He's arrested after his wife is found dead at the bottom of a staircase. The police think that he bludgeoned her to death. His defense is that he pushed her down. Um, but it's twists and turns and investigative tunnel vision and, you know, evidence discovered at the last minute yeah. and, you know, defense experts everywhere. So it's super interesting. Hmm. So, yeah, we're going to go through that episode by episode. Is that basically like the clue defense? Where it's like, actually, I did it with a candlestick. I'm yeah. off scot-free. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a knife and it was not in the bathroom. It was in the solarium. <laughs> All right. I get away with murder now. Exactly. <laughs> that, is, that is an intriguing legal defense. Yeah, so it should be really fun. But thanks for having me. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Oh, thank I'm, you. I'm really, uh, I'm really excited to be here. It is always very funny when people tell me they're fans of the podcast. Because <laughs> yeah. I just, I'm like, wow, people listen to this. It's, uh, I know. It's always crazy. You probably have dozens of listeners. Dozens, exactly. Um, so we were we were chatting kind of before, like just to set this up. And you had mentioned that you had had a couple of phone calls with our premier designate. Um, hopefully people's ears just started bleeding somewhere in the sort of like parliamentary procedure nerd gallery. Um, they, they, they're never happy. You can't please them. You can't. I mean, it's premier-elect, premier-designate. Is he, He's not the premier yet. I go designate. I, I, I think it's fair. You know, it's close enough. I guess so. But yes, you had a couple conversations with uh, with our our good Doug Ford um, about some criminal justice issues. And I will, I will let you set the stage and uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, so it was super bizarre. Um, just before the election, about you know, a week before the election, I was in Toronto uh, speaking at a conference and uh, Emily, who's um, pretty involved in politics and uh, is involved uh, with the NDP, uh, came with me to Toronto and she had just finished canvassing for about seven hours with uh, Peter Tobbins in, in Toronto. Um, and we were having a drink at the hotel after my conference and Emily, who runs into everyone, has all these chance, you know, meetings and stuff. She says, holy shit, I think that's Doug Ford that just walked out of our hotel. <laughs> and so it was. And so I ran out because I wanted to get a selfie with him. And then as I'm, as his, his body man or whatever is taking this picture, Emily is standing there decked out in her NDP buttons and totally heckling. <laughs> She's like, we're not voting for you. We're, we're, we're NDP supporters. And it was sort of embarrassing. So I got the picture taken and uh, I'm sort of like walking away. And to his credit, Ford calls us back and he's like, 
hold on, hold on. I know you're voting for the NDP, but let's still have a chat and talks to us for a little bit. And then he pulls, I, I guess, what is the Ford thing to do and gives me his cell phone number and says, give me a call if there's anything I can do for you or your family. If you ever need anything, just, you know, send me a text, give me a call. Um, and so we left. And of course, then I thought of all the things that I would have liked to say to him. Like, I would have liked to give him my phone number and said, I'm a criminal defense lawyer. You should call me if you ever need my help. Um, <laughs> but of course, you never think well, of those things at the time. No. Um, and so I had his phone number in my phone. And then um, a couple days before the election, the Ottawa Police Association, there's a story in CBC about how they endorsed yes. um, the Conservative Party. I was very upset about that personally. I was, I was kind of... It's, it seemed odd. I, I would, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I mean, I've got my own thoughts on that. <laughs> I always, I find it unseemly when, you know, police associations yeah. endorse, you know, political parties. It shouldn't be political. I find it unseemly when, um, when one level of government that's partisan endorses, you know, another level of government that's not partisan, like yeah. city councillors endorsing like MPPs or MPs endorsing city councillors. I just don't like sort of that, you know, partisanship when, yeah, you, sure. when you don't need to have it. Yeah. Um, and so the story was the Ottawa police are endorsing Doug Ford and the Conservatives, and they say specifically the two reasons why they're doing that is because the Ottawa police don't like the new rules uh, and legislation with respect to carding, and they don't like the new legislation with respect to police oversight. Um, and so I thought this would be a perfect uh, opportunity to put the Ford number to the test. And I texted him and I told him that the Ottawa Police Association is endorsing you because they say that you're in favor of carding or you'll roll back carding and that you're in favor of looser police oversight. Um, say it ain't so. And two hours later, he calls me back and has like a 30 minute conversation with me telling me that he he is opposed to carding. It's unfair. It's discriminatory. Um, and that he is in favor of police oversight. There's bad apples everywhere. There's no bigger friend of the police than him, but he wants to make sure that good officers aren't stained by bad officers. And he was a bit more nuanced with that answer, said, said that he'll go through the new legislation line by line and develop a position on it. Yeah, but, he said that for a lot of things, to be fair. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, like, that was part of the shock that I had when he called me. I thought instead of calling me to talk to me about policy positions you don't have yet or are, <laughs> are still sort of like in their infancy, in mere days before the election, maybe you should be developing a policy or costing out your platform or something like that. But stayed on the phone a long time, had this phone call with me, um, and then he won, which was a, a, a fun day for me. Um, and I decided that, uh, that I'd write him an open letter. Um, because he seems to respond to this sort of thing, and I've got a weekly column in, in Canadian uh, Canadian Law Magazine. So I wrote an open letter to Doug Ford about different provincial justice policy initiatives that um, could use his attention. And within three hours of it being posted, I get another call, a blocked number. I was expecting a call from a client who had just got arrested from the police station. So <laughs> I thought I ran out of the meeting. I thought it was this client, but it turns out it was Doug Ford again, uh, telling me that he's read my open letter and is looking forward to discussing all these issues. And then said probably the most Trumpian thing ever. He said that we're going to get everyone together in a room. And I promise you this, no one is going to leave the room happy. And that's how you know you got a good deal. <laughs> Yeah, the, the make it, making everyone mad is uh, 
It's the classic uh, perfect way to make a stew. Yeah, so I mean, it was also a bit odd that last phone call because it was, you know, just days after he was elected and he told me that he had, you know, 46,000 calls and text messages. And I'm thinking, great, I'm glad that you responded. I'm glad you read it. Um, but is, are there better things that you can be doing uh, than responding to, you know, uh, you know, your your leftist uh, troll friend, Michael Spratt? Yeah, who is not voting for you, sort of, no matter what, I guess. No, but, I mean, I do hope that, um, I think that, you know, Ford is unconventional. He certainly has had some experience in the criminal justice system. Um, he <laughs> He has... Um, He is someone who I think, like many people, but he personally has been touched by issues of addiction and mental health, which is something that we've seen. And I mean, he's interested in efficiencies and saving money. That was his whole big thing. And I think there's no better place in the criminal justice system where you can actually increase efficiencies, save money, and at the same time, make sure that things are fair for people, you know, with mental health issues that might be, you know, marginalized or racialized, the, the, the type of you know, every person working man vote that he that he courts. So I'm hoping that there might actually be some some room there for some good policy. But, you know, I'm not holding out too much hope, sure. but maybe a bit more now that uh, that I know that I've got his number. Yeah. So on, on carding, though, it's interesting because, I mean, I think, you know, the Ottawa Police Association was pretty unequivocal about like, we're happy because he's going to roll back the restrictions on carding that the Liberals put in. And that is a good thing to us. You know, they were they were pretty pretty clear about that and then i guess you get ford on the phone who tells you that he doesn't like it and that it's bad and that it should be they they should get rid of it who like do you think he was like who is he actually like it it just seems like those two things are pretty hard to reconcile right like yeah it's i i don't know if he just tells everyone what they want to hear um, or if he actually does have some concerns about carting and, you know, holding police departments, you know, in check into account. Um, if you're a fan of sort of restrained state intervention, small government, yeah. you know, civil liberties, but also sort of with the libertarian sort of bent that some conservatives have, I think you should be concerned about the expansion. And I mean, police forces only always get more money and more officers. And I mean, I think that there is room to be a conservative and still be concerned about things like that, especially when the police are looking for more money and always looking for more money. There was just uh, an article out uh, in the Toronto Star uh, a couple days ago, and and there has been similar comments by the, the police here in Ottawa that because of restrictions on carding, and we don't have a ban on carding. We just have sort of a legislative framework that controls it. But because of those controls on carding, this is why we're seeing more gun violence. And because of this increased gun violence, we need to have you know more carding and we need to have more officers and more money. But when you actually sort of unpack all that, as I think, you know, conservatives like to think of themselves as doing, being able to unpack something, look at it step by step. Yeah. It doesn't really make that much sense because we had carding five years ago during the summer of the gun. We had more money dumped into police forces during that summer as, as well, and it hasn't cured the problem. So I would like to think that you know Ford and and the progressive conservatives in uh, in Ontario 
won't be so inclined to keep on throwing good money after bad, yeah. especially when they're going to have, you know, a massive hole in their budget <laughs> that they're going to need to fill Well, in yeah, with. I mean, they're going to have to square that circle somehow, I guess, or, or just, I guess, choose not to. I mean, is the other, is the other alternative. So one thing that, I mean, you brought up that, you know, conservatives um, have the, you know, there's room in conservative thought for this sort of like small government, you know, not super fond of the, the ever reaching armed arm of the state you know expanding forever is that i mean does that current like it i can see why philosophically that current could and would exist but like does it i mean at any like reasonably high level uh because i mean you know this sounds like the kind of thing like andrew coin will talk about once in a blue moon but like other than that conservatives aren't really taken up with because i mean in the sort of culture war that politics unfortunately often finds itself sort of oriented around you know the police are definitely on one side of that right like it's uh yeah and i think justice policy and policing issues and correction issues especially at the federal level over the last 10 years um have become totally politicized sure um i mean you just have to look at the 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 flyers and the fundraising emails that came out of the conservative government yeah every time they introduce a new piece of legislation every time there's opposition for it I mean, if you're in favor of safe consumption sites or harm reduction initiatives, um, you know, if that was ever expressed in Parliament, there was an immediate uh, fundraising email saying that, you know, the NDP wanted to open up opium dens in everyone's sure. corner. I mean, I do, but... I mean, it, <laughs> it would improve your neighborhood, at least. <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, it would certainly make Town more fun. But I mean, so I mean, I think that there has been sort of that uh, political torquing, and it, it is sort of a, a red meat that you can throw yeah. to a base. Um, but when you actually take a step back and look at these issues, yeah. um, it doesn't, the evidence doesn't necessarily support those positions. And I mean, there can be, I think, legitimate disagreement about how to accomplish goals. Um, but when the evidence totally doesn't support the position, yeah. it becomes a bit disingenuous. This is the debate that we've had about, you know, minimum sentences. Sure. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've testified dozens of times on that issue. Uh, in front of various committees uh, in both the Senate and the House of Commons. And, I mean, all of the evidence shows that minimum sentences actually increase court delays, they cost money, and they don't actually increase community safety, and they don't deter anyone from committing crimes. But those are all justifications that conservatives always use. Yeah. um, That we need to have sort of minimum sentences to make our streets safer, to stop people from committing crimes. And so I think it's that level of sort of like ideological sort of cognitive dissonance that exists on on the right side of the spectrum that can be a bit frustrating. I think that there is room, though, for conservatives to come around. I mean, we were talking just before we started recording about... um, the marijuana bill and, and the uh, associated drunk driving bill that is now uh, through the Senate and back at the House uh, for them to consider some amendments. And one of the biggest amendments that has to do with charter rights, um, and this was an amendment to the drunk driving bill about um, random mandatory roadside testing, mm-hmm. meaning that police can pull over anyone for any reason and without even the slightest suspicion, demand a breath sample from that person. The amendment to remove that section that has been widely criticized in the defense bar and by academics and scholars, um, that amendment was moved by Denise Batters. 
um, you know, a very prominent conservative in the Senate, someone who, who have, I've locked horns with a number of times about constitutional and charter issues. But, I mean, she was the voice who moved that amendment, um, was talking about racial profiling, disproportionate impacts on, on marginalized groups, search and seizure, um, and a constrained state. So, I mean, if someone like that can move over for whatever reason, maybe it's yeah. just a political reason that she's she's switched sides, but I think it shows that you can have conversations. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, you, you look at the sort of, uh, uh, at the Conservative Party and the sort of Conservative Big, pen, big Tent, and there are sort of policy splits on, on different issues. You know, some people, you know, carbon tax, notably, whether, you know, the, this efficient market embracing mechanism versus, you know, the, the regulatory approach Harper favored for various reasons. Uh, supply management, obviously, is one that is, that is a flashpoint. But justice has really never been one of these sort of, like, issues that has really riven the conservative movement and, you know, federal or provincial caucuses. I, in my recollection, I could be wrong. But uh, it's just interesting. I think, I think you, you make a lot of very good points about why perhaps it should be. It's just interesting that it rarely is, I think, and we haven't seen uh, that happen too much. And I think it's it's a hard issue because it's a hard issue, justice issues, for the opposition to really get up and, yeah. and, and hold the government to account on. I mean, one of the only and best examples of that being successful is... Uh, the NDP with Stephen Harper's uh, terrorism bill, uh, C-51. Mm -hmm. um, the NDP federally came out strongly against that bill at a time that it was actually very popular. Yeah. Um, and were, you know, on the vanguard as public opinion shifted yeah. um, uh, on that specific issue. But besides that, it's very hard because it's not really a vote-getting issue. No. If you talk about supply management, I mean... There's, it's a third rail, a you secret know, cow, if you will. <laughs> exactly. And, and I mean, there's a very well-funded yeah. lobby there, um, a surprising small number of actually people who would be affected by it. I, I mean, I think 19,000 dairy farmers yeah. or something like that. But, you know, well-funded um, lobby. And same with carbon tax and tax issues, right? Yeah. These are issues that have money behind them, organization behind them. And, um, you know, might have real world consequences for everyone for justice issues. I argue that they do have real world consequences sure. for everyone, even if you're not pulled over. Um, civil rights in the Constitution should be something that's very important. But we don't have a well-funded lobby. And, you know, most of the constituents in that lobby are people that have some significant social baggage or criminal records sure. or may not be, you know, the... Uh, the type of people that you'd want to hang out with at a fundraiser necessarily. Yeah. So I think that that's why it has been a bit of a an open field um, yeah. uh, for for conservatives to to tilt, um, you know, to in in their favor and, and to get some votes. Interesting. Well, one thing also uh, we brought up the the police reform uh, bill that the liberals had put in. So there was the carding framework, and then also this oversight bill. Uh, which I think we, we were talking earlier, I think it's Bill 175. I think it's that? Bill 175. If we're wrong, someone can yell at us about it, and that's fine. But uh, can, I don't actually know very much about that bill. Uh, what were sort of the provisions of it? And uh... Well, it there was historically there's been a real problem with holding police to account appropriate oversight. Sure. And what this bill did is strengthen a lot of those mechanisms. It codifies, um, you know, some things that we've been seeing in our court about, you know, what police officers should do, who they should talk to, who they shouldn't talk to, who they should collude with or 
ideally not collude with when they're subject of an investigation. And it also increases some powers for, you know, for uh, investigations to hold police officers to, to account. Um, I think it's a good starting point. Um, and it's still newly passed. And so we're still in the early days of, of seeing its implementation. But it's, um, it's not without some controversy on both sides because uh, there are, I think, a lot of very progressive, um, socially conscious individuals who don't think it goes far enough. I mean, one I've heard e- that at a couple NDP conventions. Before. Yeah, well, I mean, one, <laughs> one example is, you know, the ridiculous situation that we get found in where police officers uh, are suspended without pay in a lot of circumstances, or with pay, sorry, yeah. in a lot of circumstances. And so you have these prolonged investigations where if you're a teacher, if you're, you know, another professional, if, if you're not a member of, of a very strong and supportive union, you know, you don't have those same supports. Um, the bill also changes how um, police service boards interact with the police forces that they're supposed to govern, because we've seen, I think, a pretty weak police service boards. And so each police force, each city has a board of uh, made up of community members, city councillors who are supposed to oversee um, the police and they direct, you know, funding, uh, not necessarily operations, but funding issues. But really what we've seen is sort of a blank check where mm-hmm. police officers, you know, just see it as a trough. And every time that there is a request for more money, it's, it's you know, rubber stamped. Sure. And so this bill gives police service boards some more tools to sort of hold the police uh, to account. It's a very complicated area of law because it's very nuanced. Yeah. And I think that that means that even if the conservatives provincially want to roll it back or scrap it, I think it's going to be very hard to because... Uh, I think that they might be incapable of sort of engaging in that level of nuance to make sure that um, they don't throw the baby out with the bathwater when they're trying to make, you know, some changes to satisfy those unions who endorse them. (laughs) So fiddly question pursuant to that. Uh, Does the OPP have one of these? You know what? I don't even know. I think so. Yeah. Um, Not something that I've dealt with. Um, because every city that I've practiced in um, has, has, its, own, has yeah. its own provincial police forces. Sure. Um, but there are oversight bodies for uh, for the OPP and the RCMP as well. Okay, um, that was my next question. <laughs> yeah, I just, I don't know exactly how they sort of interact with Bill uh, 175. Um, so I cannot answer that question. Okay, fair enough. No, it's a, I thought it, it, it was fiddly. It was a fiddly question. Um so that provincially, that sounds like that's going to be the, the big issues in terms of, of justice, and especially sort of like criminal justice issues. Federally, I mean, the, the, the cannabis bill, obviously, is kind of the, the big one that's going to be making a lot of new, you know, I don't really know what the word is here. Well, we've... Fertile ground for, for defense attorneys, certainly. Yeah, there's definitely... I mean, so we have the, the cannabis bill, um, 45, and the companion impaired driving bill, right. which I think we're actually going to see more litigation coming out of the impaired driving bill yeah, um, because it fundamentally changes a lot of ways that courts have dealt with impaired driving mm-hmm. um, in some, some pretty scary ways. Um, the best example is it's no longer to a crime to be uh, driving a car well impaired. It's now a crime to be impaired within two hours after driving a car. And Wait, then, what? <laughs> yeah, huh? That's exactly right. Huh. So it means that 
if you are if the police have reasonable grounds to believe you have driven and you're drunk after even some time after um, that is an offense and then the burden shifts to the accused in that situation to actually prove that they weren't uh, impaired while driving a car and they uh, weren't um, and if they had consumed alcohol after driving yeah. that they didn't have any reason to believe that they'd be the subject of a police investigation so I mean just from, from like a black letter point of view here like if you if you got home from work on a Friday had a couple of cold ones you would then be breaking the law technically no technically no okay. but if you um, got home from work on a Friday um, you parked a skew in your driveway. Um, someone called in and said, um, you know, this car pulled into the driveway um, and it, it was at an odd angle and it was, you know, swerving a little bit in its own lane. Um, the person could be intoxicated and the police came and knocked on your door and you answered it and it's two hours later and you've had a couple drinks. Then under those circumstances, you definitely, um, the police would have grounds to arrest you, to charge you. Um, and the Crown could prosecute you for that. Wow. And then the onus would shift to you that when you started drinking, you know, an hour after you got home, you didn't have uh, any reason to believe that the police would be interacting with you and that you would have to prove that you weren't impaired when you were driving and your, your alcohol level when you were tested you would have to prove that your pattern of drinking actually supported that alcohol. That is a lot of burden on the accused. It's a lot of burden on the accused, and it requires accused people to call expert evidence about their pattern of drinking to do sort of a readback. To it's say, my buddy Rob. <laughs> yeah. To, well, I mean, so an accused... He never that, has tequila on a Friday. <laughs> and you would have to call someone to say, like, your evidence would be, no, I got home at 6, uh, I got changed, I, I, had my, I had a beer at 6.30, I had a glass of wine at dinner at 7, and then um, my neighbor came over and I did a shot with him. Um, and you would have to correlate your drinking, those alcohol levels, the timing of that drink to ultimately what you blew at the police station to match it up. And that means that you need to call expert evidence to do that. Impaired drivings are one of the most common uh, charges that we have in our courts. So we're going to see a lot of litigation about the constitutionality of this bill. We're going to see uh, a lot of delays in our courts. And we're going to see a lot of people who can't afford to hire the experts to come yeah. and testify on their behalf. And um, so we're going to see a lot of unfairness as well. And that's just one small change in this massive impaired driving bill that really changes everything and, mm -hmm. and only introduces, you know, only, you know, 75 percent of that bill. Um, is about uh, impaired driving and only about 25% is about is about marijuana, but it's been hooked uh, to the marijuana bill. So yeah, so now both of those are back in the House now with some amendments. Um, I mean, they were all good amendments that the Senate made or most of them were good. Looks like the government's going to reject most of that. And so I think we're going to be left with basically the bills as introduced. And there's some massive, massive problems there. Hmm. That's, yeah, I'd... I'd... I had done like a little bit of work um, last fall related to the, the the new impaired driving bill, but it's been obviously a while now. And I, I think this is like, you know, our justice critic uh, in the NDP has been fairly outspoken on this and has, has waved the flag on that issue. But yeah, it's, that's, that's pretty 
That's pretty bad. I mean, it is. And I mean, the bones of that bill were so bad as well, from my perspective. It was originally a conservative bill introduced, you know, shortly before the election in 2015. And then it was reintroduced by um, Stephen Blaney as a private member's bill. Mm -hmm. And then about 80% of that bill was reused by the liberals Mm. and, and introduced with some extra marijuana stuff added in. And so it really is a conservative bill with some minimum sentences taken away and some marijuana stuff added. Um, And so I think it's made for some weird bedfellows and some weird, you know, negotiation in both the House and the Senate. But ultimately, I think it's going to be a bit of a disaster. Okay, well, um, that is that is bad, I guess. (laughs) So you you brought up testifying in front of committees a couple times and... um, Etienne suggested this. This was his, his write-in topic. Uh, what I should what I should ask you about was what is the experience of preparing for committee as a witness? And I, I can get into a bit more on the the legislative side of what that's like, but I'd like to hear uh, the the witness point of view. Yeah. So I've testified um, for the uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association, um, for the Criminal Lawyers Association, and um, recently been doing a bunch just as an, an individual expert on some issues. I think I've testified, I've encountered it, but maybe 30 times before uh, House and Senate committees. Um, It's an interesting process. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Mm -hmm. And normally the the notice we get is is, it's pretty short notice. Yeah. So I'm testifying um, this coming Wednesday on um, Bill C51, C the Liberal C51, not the terrorism (laughs) bill that already passed, but um, this is a bill about uh, cleaning up the criminal code and making some pretty fundamental changes to to sexual assault law. There's a thing about um, not frightening the queen, or frightening the queen is being removed. That's Alarming her majesty is removed, which means that I will (laughs) never be able to to defend someone who has alarmed her majesty. Yeah. And if we believe in deterrence, I, uh, I guess uh, there might be more instances of alarming her majesty yeah, now that she's no longer a crime. Very alarmed. I think there's also something about no longer being able to pretend to be a, a someone who does divination of various kinds. Yeah, in Canada currently, it's uh, it's not a crime to be a witch. But you can't pretend to be a witch. But it's a crime to practice mm. or pretend to be uh, to be a witch. Um, which is actually sort of interesting. Emily was uh, teaching, um, so my spouse Emily was teaching at uh, Ottawa University and was talking about this bill and some, you know, silly sections of the criminal code we have. And there were some um, students from, uh, not from Canada, I think they were from, uh, from India. And they were actually sort of shocked that we'd be removing that section from the criminal code because, you know, it does in some areas deal with some some problems about about you know utilizing religion and belief and stuff in a false way to sure. in a fraudulent way but it's not really a problem that we have in canada no. so much yeah but so for that bill um i got notice um just late last week so we're usually talking about a week's notice at the best of times and then um you're given between five and ten minutes to make an opening statement when you when you do testify quite often the date that you're going to testify is moved around a lot you're told to come on a Wednesday, then Tuesday, then you know Thursday, then back to Wednesday. Luckily, I'm local, so that something <laughs> I can accommodate. Um, but you have between five and ten minutes to to make your opening statement or to to give your evidence. And I mean, sometimes these bills are hundreds and hundreds of pages long, so it's very hard to do that. Um, usually, I submit a, a written brief as well, but there's page limits on that too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they're pretty tight as well it's i think between like five and 15 pages 
I mean, I remember on the impaired driving bill, actually, in, in the House of Commons, I submitted a brief that was like 11 pages and it got sent back and back and back until they take it. They took the page length really <laughs> seriously. I mean, I was doing the old yeah. high school thing. But dissenting reports now are only allowed to be up to 10 pages or the length of the original report, whichever is shorter, which is like, if you have a lot of substantive disagreements as an opposition member, it's like... Especially when you have sort of these omnibus bills yeah. that, that deal with like very broad issues, yeah. right? Um, I mean, these bills can be hundreds of pages and deal with like lots of different substantive areas. Yeah. Um, so even with a, a brief and even with, you know, 10 minutes, um, it's very hard to get all your points in. Um, before I attend, I read every, every word that has been spoken about the bill um, in both the Senate and the House. So both at, you know, previous committee hearings, previous debates, if the bill had been introduced in another form before I read that. Um, I also read, you know, every other brief that has been submitted. I talk to other groups who will be testifying. Um, if I'm testifying on behalf of an organization, I consult with the committee and the membership. Um, usually it's been pretty good where I've been given sort of free reign in a lot of cases to, to talk because I'm not very good at towing party lines. So, <laughs> so luckily my lines have, have um, dovetailed pretty well with the organizations that I've represented. Um, but I mean, there's hours of work doing that sort of thing. And then after you testify, um, there's usually about an hour, 40 minutes of questions and answers where um, each member of the committee gets one or two questions yeah. in a couple rounds to, to, to ask questions. And I'll quite often sort of prepare for those types of questions because we know uh, generally sort of what questions might be asked sure. given, given parties and given people's positions expressed in either the House or the Senate at different debates. So that is, I think, one of the most important parts um, because quite often, you know, if someone disagrees with you, it's you can tell that that the question that's being asked is sought to elicit an answer that can be woven into yep. you know talking points or a report and so i mean you have to obviously be honest answer truthfully um but at the same time you have to sort of know where the question is going so you don't necessarily fall into yeah. any traps or become like a an unwitting sort of accomplice or dupe to to someone's position yeah um Sometimes what I'll do, and I do this a bit more now that I, I know the members of the committee uh, a bit a bit better, I sometimes try to talk to different MPs and senators to find out what they're interested in mm -hmm. and what their concerns are going to be. Because with such a limited time, um, I mean, you don't want to spend your time focusing on something that's not going to be an issue. You want to make sure that, that you use it to sort of address yeah. uh, address their questions. So I was actually going to ask you about that because on the legislative side, sometimes you'll just, you'll just ask witnesses, like if there's someone you know or that you invited because you know that they're going to have a point of view that is sympathetic to whatever you know your point of view is, you'll just say, hey, what do you want me to ask you? Yeah. Right? Just yeah. like, what do you want to get on the record if you don't have time in your yeah. statement? Like, I'm just going to give you more time to say what you want. What do you want to ask? Yeah, and I, like I generally don't. I don't love doing that. No, totally fair. I can see like, why. <laughs> it just it feels a bit like scripted and a bit sort of like not transparent. But I see why why it's it's useful. Yeah. Um, and over time, I mean, what I've learned, um, and I think it helps being a lawyer and cross examining people and being in court and, and making arguments and things, is. If you ask me a question, I'll be able to provide an answer that I want to give that addresses the points that I want to raise. Right. Um, that is definitely a skill at these things, yes. <laughs> and so, I mean, like, I think that there there is a bit of a, a skill there. Um, you know, 
I can think of a few times where, you know, I've been asked, you know, a softball question or a hardball question from one side or the other. And, you know, I can answer that question. And, you know, before the chair cuts me off, yes. I can transition pretty quickly into the point that I want to make that I think is important because these hearings are really important. Yeah. Um, it is super frustrating because it sometimes seems that not much changes. Um, there usually isn't, uh, I think it may be the way that the committee structure is set up. It may be sort of the controls that, you know, parties of the prime minister's office have on, on members of the committee, um, or, you know, directing votes on certain issues, but it does seem that there aren't usually very many substantive amendments, Mm -hmm. um, and, especially we're seeing it now at the Senate, if there are substantive amendments, most of those aren't accepted uh, by the government. But these hearings um, are a goldmine when you're challenging the constitutionality of legislation. Yeah. Um, And that, I mean, I've never been a huge fan of the Senate as an unelected body. Um, But over the last number of years, and especially through, you know, um, Stephen Harper's government's, um, it was the best place to turn for a complete record um, that had, you know, robust testimony, a variety of witnesses and good evidence on these issues that almost always found their way into con- successful constitutional challenges and court judgments. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, that doesn't happen until years later. Right. But I mean, that's why it's so important if even if things don't change to get this stuff on the record and get positions put on the record. And as a witness, you can also use it as uh, as a tool to you know, nail down the government and the intent of, of what the legislation is. Yeah. Because based on the interactions that you have with the committee members, um, you can quite often get them to, you know, state why this legislation is important, what the intent of the legislation is. And that is often useful, you know, years down the road when, when an unconstitutional. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. I, I, I actually, in, in the ledger work I've done, it's, never been with government bills um it's always been with studies or with responses like with the tablings of reports and various officers of parliament that kind of thing so auditor general uh different commissioners of various kinds who you know talk about the main estimates and they're they're like you know what they want and need uh and then also studies um so studies are are fascinating because you have a lot it's a lot more open-ended right you're just looking at a broad issue um and then it's the Library of Parliament sort of, you know, you decide in committee, like, okay, we want to study X, Y, Z. The Library of Parliament has analysts on every committee, as you know, you know well, you, you always see them tapping away. Um, they come up with a list of potential witnesses uh, that sort of represent, a, you know, interest groups of various kinds, academics. Um, generally, that'll be kind of the big two independent experts, if, if that's applicable. Uh, organizations, if that's applicable, often uh, international. Uh, like if if, it's, if we're looking at you know various kinds of issues, they'll look at places that have implemented similar kinds mm-hmm. of ideas and bring bring those people to come testify, which is always interesting. Uh, and then on our end, we like the the different parties and different members of the committee get to suggest their own, uh, which is a fun process. That, that's where a lot of the work is because you're thinking, okay, who do we want to get in front of us? And you know, what do we want to get from Yeah, them? you're creating yeah. the record, right? Exactly. So it's, and what do we, you know, often, honestly, it's surprising how often you go into these, these like um, subject matter, if like studies and not really know exactly 
what you want to get out of it at the other end. You have a broad sense, like you have broad ideas going in that, you know, led you to, to agree to this anyway, but like often you kind of go in with not much of an agenda and that can feel very refreshing. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean that's probably the way it should be, right? Yeah, like if you're like, looking at a sort of a scientific experiment, you don't want to yeah. craft the evidence to get to the result that you want. And the studies are are super important. And the ones yeah. that, that I've seen um, in the justice context have been pretty meaningful. There was a really meaningful study by the... Um, the House Justice Committee on the impact of criminal trials on jurors. Yeah, that was a really good one. That was like just reading the testimony of like real jurors who sat through horrible cases. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking and and exposes exposed I think a real gap in sort of the federal. Um, I mean, it's a hard one because there's shared responsibilities between yeah. the, the province and the federal government, but I think it exposed some real gaps. And there was a really good um, Senate study on court delays from yes. their justice committee. So, I mean, like, these things are important. And I will throw a plug in here. What would be really great is if we had some sort of law reform commission that could <laughs> engage in this type of nonpartisan study work that could suggest sort of broad changes. And, yeah. and that might be a... A good, um, a good analog or a, a good uh, companion to sort of these sort of ad hoc yeah. studies that we have at committee. Because I mean, we like you know M- MPs and, and legislative staff and senators and their staff. You know, they're usually people who are generalists who don't have a great understanding of any one particular policy issue. Or if they do, they're often on that committee. Um, but you know, often a lot of the time, you just, you don't know a lot about whatever issue going into it, and you're there to find out. And you know, it's the legislative staff's job on you know for each party to sort of find witnesses that are going to align broadly with the worldview you you want to sort of bring to the table, and that's that's fine. You know, often you're you're gonna make your second list later on if the study's going to commit continue, and you're gonna have a much better idea because you'll have been very immersed in that world for for a while. Um, so it's that's. You know, often you'll, you'll come to it a couple months later and be like, oh, I wish I had, you know, invited yeah, XYZ exactly. to this. And, you, you know, you, you spend all day like reading stories about this and you see people quoted. So you're like, oh, we got to get this guy. And that that's really a lot of it. It's pretty ad hoc. Like, surprisingly, there's not a lot, uh, at least, you know, third party, there's not a lot of central support. It's kind of just like people run their own committee shows. And that's, you know, that's the way it goes. Especially if you're, you know, if you've got one person on a committee from the party, it's like, you know who's going to tell you what to do the answer is no one <laughs> as long as you show up right it's uh you're pretty free to kind of run it how you like it is it is super interesting i mean at like at most of the specialized committees like at justice committee generally people on that committee are you know pretty up to speed on, yeah. on justice issues um i mean sometimes not as much as you would like but where, where it gets really funny and, and a bit surreal is when a different committee studies sort of a different topic area. So like marijuana was studied uh, in front of the health committee. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a number of examples like that where I think, you know, some of it is political maneuvering. I guess you probably know about this more than I do about which committee to sort of funnel bills to. But, um, you know, when you have like the social affairs committee in the Senate right, studying so marijuana, <laughs> that's when you get, you know, talks yeah. about, you know, how many tokes can you carry in your pocket? And, and, you know, so <laughs> other bizarre things yes. that, that, you know. Well, and some of the committees have been bad for because it's just like the industry committee, industry, science and technology. Like, well, enjoy that portfolio. That is like 80% of the things that come before government. So, you know, it's just like 
that's tough right like you know you have veterans which like okay that's pretty circumscribed like in natural resources same thing like you kind of know what you're getting into there but like yeah industry science and technology that's a real grab bag i mean that's everything i know and i can't like uh, like god forbid if someone ever has the misfortune of like electing me i can't imagine <laughs> if someone put me on a committee like that it i mean this is one of the reasons we're like we're uh, criminal lawyers we're you know often talking about you know getting appointed as a judge and would you want to be a judge and it's freaking terrifying like i only do criminal law if you get appointed to the superior court you're all of a sudden doing family law and commercial transactions yeah. and like all this civil stuff i can only imagine being you know thrown into one of these sort of broader committees and one day studying yeah. you know natural resource extraction and the next day studying some like scientific hospital like it's just yeah it's, it's i don't just, know how you keep up with it it's it's tough <laughs> i think is the answer like it's just you you the staff do a lot of lifting there just to make sure, you know, their, their MPs go into it as prepared as they can be and, like, with sort of a plan. The plan, of course, never survives first contact, but um, especially if you have an MP who likes to improvise, uh, which, you know, some some do. Some do and some are great improvisers. Some do and some are not great improvisers, yeah. which, I mean, there, there really is no feeling like being a legislative staffer and having your MP go off script on something really just not great and you're just stuck there being like oh my god <laughs> this is my nightmare well and it must be even worse now i mean you with like everything televised you can watch all the committee hearings yeah. and and i don't know how long you've been able to do this but i've only i think stumbled upon it in the last 12 months or so but on the uh the parlor view website yeah. you can actually like clip now down Ooh, to yeah it. well that that's actually an interesting point because um i've sort of come to think of asking questions in two categories uh clips and report fodder it's like stuff we want to get which is you know the more substance stuff we want to make it to the report on substance policy stuff so those those are the ones that are you know intelligent good questions clip questions are i mean they can be intelligent they can't they're usually quite probing i think uh whether they're fair or or mm -hmm. nuanced is a different question but they are probing uh and it's just to get this and you know people people do watch them uh, people do watch these clips from committee, uh, and often they're, they're good exchanges. Uh, but it does sort of breed the mindset that you go into it with like, okay, what can I clip from this? What can I get on, you know, into the report? Because ultimately, if you're doing like a subject matter study, that's kind of your two avenues, right? Like there's the report at the end, and there's, you know, clips you generate on the way. And part of the clips, I mean, it's, it's like you're generating some hype for the report, right? You're saying like, okay, look at this cool, interesting yeah. study. Look what's going on. Isn't this fun? Uh, and it is, you know, I think in often these things will come out with very very interesting reports that are actually like you know i'm sure you've, you've read a couple they're, they're great like the library of parliament does the sort of lion's share of putting them together the analysts on the committee and like they are phenomenal like they're they're very logical they flow really well they bring all the evidence together the recommendations are always clear it's great i i genuinely have a ton of respect for the work they do but it's you know you gotta you gotta pour a little little oil on that fire sometimes why would i read those <laughs> why would i read those studies when i can watch 20 second clips of all these old people talking yeah. about like marijuana advertising think of it and, like, like a trailer crazy. yeah <laughs> it's like a trailer for the report but it's crazy. i mean i can only imagine the sheer terror like you're setting up your you know your mp you're doing research you've got like topic areas and talking points and all this stuff and then they go off script and say something that you know is going to get clipped and yeah i mean just like on the marijuana bill we've got like uh, well, Senator Batters was talking about how yeah the hockey jersey thing that yes. marijuana leaf looks like the hockey jersey, and then you've got 
Eaton, I think it was Eaton talking about how many tokes can you carry in your yes. pocket. And... I mean, nothing will beat. There was a U.S. congressman at one point who asked that he was worried that if we put too many troops in Guam, the island would sink. And like, luckily, you know, I've never seen anything that bad. That was really something else. Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't get that dumb in the House of Commons and the Senate. Luckily, uh, we, we we do have a certain standard to uphold, and we do. But uh, yeah, no, that that's kind of the legislative side going into it. I, I, yeah, the government bills thing is, I think, a, a substantively quite different thing. And unfortunately, I just I, I haven't done it enough to, to comment on it. So sadly, uh, I have I have little insight to bring from from that the political side there. But um, no, but it's like it's an interesting process. Yeah, and I mean, I always go back and forth on on cameras and how much access we should have and, and things yeah. like that. Um, but I mean, I think it is one of those things that, I mean, over the last number of years with opening it up with cameras, with web archives and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I think it's just sort of, to me at least, highlighted the importance. And I mean, I'm a huge legal nerd and political nerd, um, but these things are so useful and hell, it can be good theater, man. If you just had someone <laughs> edit down yeah. a full, you know, a full sitting session into a couple half hour episodes. Yeah. Um, hey, it's free content. Well, I mean, t- speaking of content, the ethics committee right now is doing a study on uh, the, the Cambridge Analytica Facebook breach. And the, it's been some like inquisitorial grillings there of these various guys, uh, like Facebook got grilled, um, these guys from this company in BC that were sort of peripherally involved in this got grilled a couple times, and it's like, it's, it's like, there's some good theater to be had there. I think people who, who aren't following committee work are, are missing out, uh, you know, and it's, you guys should, you should all get on that. It's great. Yeah, it's not just for CPAC anymore. <laughs> That'd be a great t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> So I think that'll, that'll probably do it for us. Um, also, speaking of, we were talking about um, opposition committee work on government bills. Uh, we had Peter Farrell here a month or two back talking about his work on C45 and the Health Committee. Uh, I don't remember the, the number of the episode, but that's fine. The astute listener can find it. It was it was a good one, so I'd recommend if, if these issues are interesting to you, please do listen. Uh, it was a good one. Uh, otherwise, you, you have any anything you want to plug on, on the way out or... Oh, geez. I don't think so. I mean, um, if you uh, want to hear more of me, you can uh, find my podcast, The Docket. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud. <clears throat> you can also find it on uh, my website, embarrassingly titled uh, michaelsprat.com. It's, it's perfectly normal. There you go. Um, <laughs> I was actually in a race. I wanted to. So it was a couple years ago. I started like my blog and website and stuff, I think back in 2013. Um, and I had a race to get it because there's a congressman in the States, Michael Spratt, um, who always like popped up whenever I Googled myself mm. and I was like, I've, even if I'm not going to start a website, I need to get, I need to brand myself. You gotta get right? it. You gotta, yeah. you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta own, your, own your property. Yeah. Uh, so you can find me there. And on Twitter, if you want to hit me up, um, I'm at M Spratt. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Michael. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. And, uh, for regular listeners, we will be back on regular service pretty soon. Pretty soon. When a chance back. Can't wait. Yeah, I actually don't remember when he's back, so it'll be soon. (laughs) Thanks, everyone. Good night.